Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Catholic Talk Show. Today, we're going to be talking about ways we can defend Our Lady, the Most Blessed Virgin Mary. That's right. We're joined by apologist Trent Horn, and we're going to look at the four Marian dogmas and what the Catholic Church actually teaches about Our Lady and how to defend that against people who would detract her. Let's face it. I mean, the model and example of our Christian faith is the Blessed Virgin Mary. And understanding these dogmas more thoroughly will really help you express to people who Mary is in the history of salvation. back with you guys and we have a very special guest again uh, Trent Horn is on our show for I believe the second time this is the second time yeah really uh, grateful to have you on the show with us today yeah big fans of Trent over here Trent is one of the most gifted apologists working in the church today uh, he provides a tremendous service by really using his intellect and a very a very calm demeanor on how he's able to have uh, conversations with people and defend the church's teachings in a very precise loving and um, powerful way. So it's a real honor to have you on, Trent. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, evangelization is charitable at, yeah. at its essence. And and to realize what Trent has done and, and so many other great Catholic relationships that we have in, in online mm -hmm. with evangelists is just really, uh, it's impressive. So I'm stoked about my first time with Trent because last time, I think it was just you guys, yeah. I couldn't make the show. So Trent, I'm happy to be with you and, and to share in this great conversation, uh, knowledgeable of your materials online. And just as a priest, just very grateful for what you do, brother. May God continue to enrich your your path forward. You know, jumping into Marian dogmas, um, you know, each of us, I know, you know, we're just so Marian-centered. And our whole show is dedicated to the Blessed Mother. We've done a number of things on Mary, and it always seems to pick up so much traction. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm excited about really focusing on dogmas today. And one, telling people what a dogma is, because I think that'll be really important, Trent, is just to share what a dogma is and why we have those, yeah. and then to really dig into them specifically related to the Blessed Mother. And, yeah. and being raised in Northeast Florida, you know, I mean, 80% of my friends, uh, uh, had something to say about Mary. You yeah. know what I mean? It was mm -hmm. like, there's not, not a, it's not a very large Catholic population here mm -hmm. compared to, you know, other larger cities. Deep root Bible Belt. I mean, like yeah. in all reality, Florida, yeah. deep roots is is uh, that yeah. Bible Belt. Yeah, and that's not just in Florida. That's all over the world, all over the country. I mean, oh, for sure. everyone's experienced that. And, you know, I would say maybe, you know, in our younger lives, we probably would have defended Mary's honor by, you know, the good old-fashioned fist fight. But I think Trent's going to teach us a little bit more <laughs> of an intellectual way and probably the more proper way. So, Trent, could you explain to us what is a dogma? How does it differ from just maybe a teaching or an understanding? Right. So a dogma is a teaching of the church that has the highest authority of all the church's teachings. So uh, what the church teaches comes in different levels of authority and requires uh, different assent on our part. So on the lowest level, sometimes the church proposes or allows uh, different theological speculation or opinions. And we'll talk about some of those actually with some of these dogmas where the church hasn't weighed in on a particular answer to a question related to who are the brethren of the Lord or did Mary die at the end of her life mm -hmm. uh, and allows different speculations or theological opinions. Then above that, there is the, the ordinary teaching of the church 
that ordinary teaching requiring the religious submission of mind and will. Then above that, you have infallible teachings of the church, where the church teaches something and it defines it. In Latin, de fine, the matter is brought to an end. It makes an infallible declaration. We see these in canons, for example, of the ecumenical councils, like in the Council of Trent, uh, talking about these infallible teachings of the faith. You just wanted to relate that. I know what you just did there. <laughs> Council of Trent, yeah. infallible. I, well, I see what you're doing. That's the name of his YouTube friends. channel. And then when they podcast. declare it, they blow the horns. <laughs> you're, you're killing it right now. If I repeat I it enough, <laughs> you'll associate it. Yes. Yeah, uh, and we'll put a link in here in the description and everything so you can go check it out because Trent's podcast and oh, his YouTube channel is awesome. Yeah, you guys and for have all to of check our, it out. If you like our channel and think we know something. Check him out. He's much better than us. No it's funny. Closer. A few people have said to me over the years that I misspelled the Council of Trent in my podcast, <laughs> to which I tell them they need to learn what a what a pun is. Uh, <laughs> but then one of one set of those infallible teachings, though, that would be the highest authority, would be when the church infallibly defines something as being a part of divine revelation. So uh, when the church says that this is something, the truth that must be accepted and to reject it involves grave matter to to personally reject that truth and that this truth is a part of what god has revealed to us in divine revelation those would be matters of dogma so when we think about christ's divinity or his real presence in the eucharist for example those are dogmas of the faith uh, the papacy would also be a dogma and uh these tr particular truths about mary so there are some theological opinions there are common theological opinions about mary uh, but there are these four dogmas that form really the foundation of mariology and those would be that mary is the mother of god that she is ever virgin she is immaculately conceived and she was assumed body and soul into heaven so those would be the four dogmas taught with the highest level of the church's authority and as be saying infallibly this is a part of divine revelation We've really had the privilege, Trent, on the show to be able to interact with a number of brothers and sisters from Protestant and evangelical backgrounds. Um, if you could just speak to like why papal authority, magisterial teachings, and like this authority associated with dogmatic truths that are tied to revelation, why is that so important to Christianity as a whole? Why, why is that important to even consider uh, related to the faith if I have a relationship with Jesus? Well, it's important to the faith because going back to the very beginning, uh, Christ and the apostles underscored the importance of having a teaching authority for believers. And so for the very first believers, these were the apostles. Uh, Luke 10, 16, Jesus tells the apostles, he who hears you, hears me. He tells them, uh, I give you the keys to the kingdom. What you bind on earth is bound in heaven. He gives them authority. Jesus even says that they will sit on 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. So he gives them a real authority over the church, that the church was never meant to be merely an invisible bond between believers, and we all just read the Bible and figure out what it means for ourselves. In fact, when you look at Acts of the Apostles in chapter 8 of Acts, uh, when Philip the Evangelist meets the Ethiopian uh, eunuch on the side of the road who's reading Isaiah 53, and asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, well, no, unless someone shows me. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's so important to have a magisterium, this kind of teaching authority to settle disputes, uh, because people can read scripture in a variety of ways. Uh, when you had in the early church, you had a dispute about, well, is Jesus, 
there's that phrase, it doesn't make one iota of a difference to me. Iota or yota, to pronounce it more correctly, is the Greek letter I in the Greek alphabet. And so there's a question, well, is Jesus of the same being as the father, homo usios, homo usio, usios is being homo same, same being, or similar, he's like the father, but not entirely, homoi usios. One little iota makes all the difference, and adding that yota, that I, is heresy uh, to deny Jesus is fully divine. And so it's, it's these fine matters of theology that the magisterium intervenes in order to uphold the faith and continue uh, the cor- correct trajectory in doctrinal development. So, yeah, there's so no I, get... I in team, but there is an I in Arius, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have a question, too, in, in regards to proclaiming the truth. The church has uh, many, many truths that has been proclaimed. What when they, you know, I mean, you look at speaking of the Arian heresy and then the divinity of Christ, that that came to a head through the heresy and the convening of mm-hmm. bishops and the proclamation of the truth with a lot of contention, mm-hmm. right? With a lot of political maneuvering. Um, at what point when the church does come together on a truth, do they say, well, this, this should be a dogma and this should be a truth, right? Mm-hmm. Like, for example, you know, um, like something that's in scripture that, you know, is divine revelation that's not a dogma would be, um, you know, Joseph and Mary going to Egypt. But I guess that's or, not... or that and or that Andrew is the brother of Peter. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, yeah, that's like a fa- it's a fact that's revealed in scripture, but it hasn't the church has not, uh, you know, infallibly taught that this is a part of divine revelation. But then wouldn't I would say that by defining canon and defining what's in canon, they have dogmatically defined that truth because that's in canon. That's in, in the Well, scripture. at least the, the, the Council of Trent solemnly defined that the particular books of Scripture that we determine to be Scripture, that these are inspired. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has uh, solemnly defined uh, at the Council of Trent, not my podcast, of course, but at there, in and there light too, of... because you assent, of course. Right, yes. Uh, <laughs> in light of the reformers' objections of the deuterocanonical books, this is reaffirming, uh, though I also think an argument can be made that it was infallibly taught at the Council of Florence as well, but at least reaffirming what was taught at the regional councils of Hippo and Carthage in the 4th century, then later at Florence, uh, the canon that was discussed there, but definitely solemnly taught at the Council of Trent, that these yeah these particular books though I would say it leaves as an open question uh, if there are other books because you know the Eastern Orthodox affirm things like Psalm 151 for example mm-hmm. if they ever came back into the church we might have questions about well does Psalm 151 belong in the Bible or not things like that but you're right there are a lot of truths like if you think for example I know in the Catechism I think it's paragraph I don't know 306 it talks about uh, the church teaches that your soul. Uh, God immediately creates your soul. Uh, Now, among Protestant theologians and some people in the early church, there's a belief in what's called traducianism. uh, And that's the belief you get your soul from your parents. Uh, And so the church does not teach that. Uh, So it it teaches that God immediately creates the soul, but it hasn't infallibly defined that truth. Similar Mm -hmm. when we're going to talk about the Immaculate Conception. This is believed for centuries. There's a development and an understanding uh, but, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas didn't fully accept it, but he wasn't under pain of sin because it had not been dogmatically defined by that point. And the church does this with many theological issues as the faithful wrestle with them and understand it in the life of the church. And then they bring the matter to the end when they when they define it. 
Speaking of pain of sin, we don't want any of our viewers or listeners to have any pain or sin toward us because they're not liking our show right now and giving us a thumbs up or subscribing or following us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. It's certainly an anathema to not click like, share, and subscribe to both the Catholic Talk Show on all the platforms. If you go to catholictalkshow.com, you can subscribe on Google, Apple, Spotify, and all the things, Podbean, your favorite, of course. And then also to Trent's (laughs) podcast, (laughs) Council of Trent. So make sure you do that. I think that we can fairly say, you know, from our seats, our cheap seats that we bought at a garage sale to fill out the studio. It was a flea market. A flea market from our <laughs> cathedra that it is dogmatic that you do need to do that subscribe action right now. Now, there is no pain of sin related to being a Patreon, but we are truly appreciative to those who do go on our Patreon app and go on our website to support us financially. We wouldn't be able to do this without it, without you guys. I mean, we have a makeshift camera to talk with Trent right now that's <laughs> fallen over five times and, you know, these rickety chairs. So we appreciate Appreciate your generosity. Anybody out there that can continue to support the show, it certainly helps. But this a big isn't shout even coffee. Out to this guys. is mud water. <laughs> this is how poor we are. <laughs> but um, thank you for that, Father. Um, I think let's so let's get into that first of those four Marian dogmas. Um, I think the first one to go into is that the Mary is the mother of God because mm-hmm. I think that is fundamental to the rest. A lot of those other ones will flow to that or flow from that. Um, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that trend, about that dogma, that Mary is the mother of God, her divine motherhood? Sure. Uh, so if you go to paragraph 495 of the Catechism, uh, it says that the one whom she, Mary, conceived as man by the Holy Spirit, who truly became her son according to the flesh, was none other than the Father's eternal son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Hence, the Church confesses that Mary is truly mother of God, or in Greek, Theotokos. And so actually, I actually attend a Byzantine Catholic church. And so in the hymns that we sing, we primarily refer to Mary uh, by her title, uh, Theotokos, which in Greek means God bearer. So it doesn't, it's not literally mother of God, but it has, it has the same sense to it. Mother of God, one who bore God within her womb. Mary is the mother of God. And you're right that this is really the foundational Marian dogma to under, and if you don't spend a lot of time meditating upon this one, it can be hard to wrap your head around the others. But when you have a firm grasp of how special Mary is in the economy of salvation to have given birth to the creator of the universe, to to have conceived her within her womb and bore him, I mean, no one else has ever had that kind of an intimate relationship with our Lord. Now, defending it, I would say that this is also uh, one, this is a dogma that, educated Protestants do agree with us on this point. Some fundamentalist pastors will get all in a huff about it and try to deny it, but educated Protestants will say, you're, you're correct. Jesus is God, all right? So, and, and he is a divine person, his entire existence. He is fully human nature, fully divine nature. He is a divine person. So if Mary is the mother of Jesus and Jesus is a divine person, it follows that Mary is the mother of, of a divine person, so Mary is the mother of God. They'll quibble about how the title is used, but they'll accept that the title uh, is uh, acceptable, is valid towards Mary. Yeah. And I know that uh, Muslims will particularly attack this dogma quite a lot. They'll say, how can how can uh, God have any beginning? How can God be born of a mother? God is eternal. And I think that is also a, a lot of times the same argument that Protestants would use. Yes. But yeah, that's they, a, yeah, please. It's a misunderstanding. And you're right that if a Protestant will say, well, God doesn't have a mother, so clearly Mary is not the mother of God, 
Well, then you could say that God does not uh, reproduce and have sons like you or I do. Muslims say that about Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, those they'll, they'll say that uh, how can God have a son because he doesn't have a wife? It, you know, it comes from a fundamental misunderstanding of these terms. When we say Mary is the mother of God, we don't mean that Mary gave birth to the Trinity or Mary created Jesus's divine nature. Because Protestants will say this, well, she didn't give Jesus his divinity. So she's not the mother of God. And I would ask them, what does it mean to be a mother? What does it mean? What, what is a mother? What is a woman? <laughs> what is a mother? Like that's a term you have to define. And I would say a mother is someone who conceives and gives birth to a person. So you're, you're a mother if you conceive a person in your womb and you give birth to a person. So then the problem is if you reject Mary as the mother of God, you will end up being a Christological heretic. You will end up having a heresy related to who Jesus is. Because if Mary is not the mother of God, this is, I mean, this is the, the controversy that erupted in the fifth century that gave rise to the council, not gave rise, but was a part of the council of Ephesus saying, well, look, Nestorius is saying Mary is the mother of Christ, not the mother of God. All right, well, Christ is fully human, fully divine. So if Mary's not the mother of God, my question is, She's the mother of Jesus. Where is the second person of the Trinity? Mm-hmm. That's always the question you have to ask. So, okay, so Mary's not the mother of God. She's the mother of Jesus in her womb. While Jesus is in the womb of Mary, where is the second person of the Trinity? God, the son. So if he's identical to Jesus, as he should be, Jesus and the son are the same person. They're one person. Then Mary's the mother of God. Otherwise, you end up with adoptionist heresies that say, well, Jesus, Mary was the mother of Jesus, and then Jesus becomes God later. Well, then he's not really, because then here's the problem. If he becomes God later, then in the womb of Mary, people give birth to persons. There's a human person in there, but Jesus is not a human person. He is, a, he is one divine person, the son, who has a fully human nature and a fully divine nature. Mary gave Christ his humanity in virtue of her motherhood. And she conceived him and gave birth to him as a divine person. That makes her the mother of God. Yeah. That, that is phenomenally methodical. I mean, that was an excellent method of explanation. I mean, that was really phenomenal. On the, and it's like and he's, he's, like he's side, done this before. Yeah, I know. You know have you it's like he's an apologist. <laughs> yeah. no, and the terms are important. If you're yeah. wrong, you have errors. No, it's so true. And and I'm I'm sitting here thinking as you're as you're sharing that of the exchange of Mary and Elizabeth and the child leaping in her womb, you know, like this, this exchange and this proclamation of existence mm-hmm. and, and identity. And, uh, you know, what a powerful, what a, and Elizabeth powerful. calls Mary the mother of my Lord. Lord. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's exactly who's, it. Well, who's that? Who's, who's Elizabeth's Lord? <laughs> yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. That's so good. And then, I think the other thing too, is like so Mary can't, I mean, mothers don't give they they receive and 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 have a, a bear a child they they don't give that child any certain things while they're bearing this child it's it's impossible it's well they, well, they do i mean they do provide the genetic material that allows a child to grow and develop that's why you know jesus will, when we are in heaven jesus will have a more than passing familiarity to mary because yeah. they sh- they share a genetic code 
Uh, but you're right that she doesn't, it's not like she assembles Jesus's parts or that she has to give him his divine nature. That's something that comes from him being a divine person. But there is that intrinsic leak of humanity that makes her truly the mother of God. Yeah, two really cool things on that is that mothers, they've found that mothers will carry parts of the DNA of the children that they bore with Mm -hmm. them in their bodies for the rest of their Mm -hmm. lives. So Our Lady would have carried genetically, after having born the Lord, his genetics with her, and he would have carried hers. And then one of my favorite things, I don't know if you've ever seen like a footage reel from like a 1920s or 30s World Series where they didn't have TVs and all the people would be standing outside like the radio shop listening to the radio and just waiting for, I don't know, the Yankees to win a World Series or whatever. This was proclaimed at the Council of Ephesus, right? And the the regular folk would would like hang out outside where all the bishops were meeting and waiting to get news. And there'd be like, you know, runners and assistants coming out and they're just waiting to get news of whether or not the bishops are going to proclaim this dogma. And when they did, you know, it said that all the people who were kind of gathered outside started cheering and had a Mm. big celebration. Like it was, this was like very important to the people and the will of the people as well. I would have been right there cheering and (laughs) yeah, they're all like trying to hear in and listen. And when they, when they're like, it's passed. It's passed. You know, they declared oh, it. And wow. They were all like, you know, cheering. That's so a beautiful scene. Love that story. Yeah, that's a great story. Uh, you know, another cool thing is that this is a teaching that's very old. It's even older than the Council of Ephesus. Trent, you made the great point that even Elizabeth in Scripture points out, this is the mother of my Lord. But, um, you know, the oldest Marian prayer is the subtuum, right? Mm-hmm. The subtuum presidium. Mm-hmm. And that's in there as well, you know, that, that saying. And that's going back to the 230s, right? So this is a very ancient teaching that the church has held from the very beginning. It's in Scripture. And beyond that, I think it's just absolutely a logical problem. If Christ is God, Mary was his mother. And anything else, you're trying to do mental acrobatics, you're going to end up, like Trent said, all these falling into a Christological heresy on the nature of Christ every Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. So now this is another one. Now this one I think is getting attacked by Protestants more than any online, and a lot of it has to do with um, our culture's fixation and obsession with sex, and our culture's obsession with, um, you know, well, uh, well, with sex. And that is that Mary is perpetually virgin. Then they will say, well, Mary, well, she said in Scripture, Mary had no intercourse until, you know, she had Jesus. And well, that doesn't imply that she didn't after. So, Trent, how would we properly defend Our Lady's perpetual virginity? Sure. So once again, it's important to define our dogmas. uh, And this one can be found in paragraph 499 of the Catechism. It says, The deepening faith in the virginal motherhood led the church to confess Mary's real and perpetual virginity, even in the act of giving birth to the Son of God made man. In fact, Christ's birth uh, did not diminish his mother. Uh, oh, sorry, let me, oh, let me go here. It, 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 the liturgy of the church celebrates Mary as I partenos, the ever virgin. Okay, so the idea is that throughout Mary's entire life, uh, before, you know, before, during, and after the birth of Christ, uh, Mary's virginity remained intact. Uh, the way to understand that is to say that Mary never had sexual intercourse. Uh, that, and the thing here, here is where we can find common ground. We can say with our Protestant friends, we agree that Mary is a virgin before the birth of Christ. And a point here that that is interesting, I would ask them, uh, would you would you agree that Mary was a virgin uh, not just up to the conception of Christ, 
but even up to his birth. Because it's interesting what you brought up about our culture, because the Protestant reformers generally accepted this dogma. They may not have wanted it to be a dogma per se, because they didn't accept the church's authority, but Martin Luther and the other Protestant reformers generally accepted that Mary was ever virgin, that to think of her uh, as not being was scandalous to them. It's more of a modern phenomenon of people rejecting this as if, you know, sex is some kind of necessity. How could you have a couple that didn't do this? And it's, it's shocking to them. But I would ask them, you know, okay, uh, not just up to the conception, but if you believe that uh, Jesus was born of a virgin, then that means during Mary's pregnancy, Mary and Joseph were never, never had a sexual relation. Because if you're only saying, well, it's just to show uh, that this is from the angel Gabriel, I'm sorry, that this is, uh, that, that Jesus is, does not have an earthly father. If you're only focusing on the conception, if you believe in, in that he was born of a virgin, our Protestant brothers and sisters would have to accept, yeah, even during pregnancy, when husbands and wives often have sexual relations, there was that even there, there was still abstinence. And so we asked the question, does this continue after Christ's birth? And you're right, our Protestant brothers and sisters have different uh, concerns and objections to this. But what I would say to them is, well, why do you, why is it so important that Christ was born of a virgin at all? What is the, why is that important? And primarily it's to show that Jesus has no earthly father. But if you think about it, so Jesus has no older siblings. It's a sign that he, you know, that he has no earthly father. But also we as Catholics would say that it's that it's an even greater sign that he has no younger siblings who are born of Mary. All right. And so uh, there it becomes this very important sign. It's not a way of saying that sex is dirty or bad or that this would defile Mary. That That is a straw man of the position. Mm -hmm. Rather, it's a great miracle to affirm that uh, Jesus has no earthly father and to see that he just as Christ is the only begotten son of the father. Mary is the only, I'm sorry, Jesus is the only begotten son of Mary. So we should just start by understanding the dogma itself. Awesome. So then how would you respond to the go-to scripture, which is, you know, this one is, well, are these, do we not, are these not his brothers? You know, is this not the carpenter's son? Do we, you know, where they talk about Jesus having brothers in scriptures, because um, that's a pretty, that is their main go-to argument. When it comes to the biblical objections, uh, there's two main approaches that people take when it comes to this dogma. One would be pointing to passages like Matthew 125 that says of Joseph, uh, he knew her, Mary, he knew her not until she had born a son and he called his name Jesus. And the idea here is that, well, if he knew her, un he knew her not, did not have relations with her until she bore a son, then that means afterwards there's a reversal, then they had mm -hmm. relations. But Matthew is not talking about what happened after Jesus was born. What he's underscoring here is simply that they did not have sexual relations prior to the birth of Jesus, that Jesus has no earthly father. That is the main point that Matthew is making. And the word until does not always imply a reversal. Later on in Matthew 28, uh, that same Greek word heos is used when Jesus says, behold, I am with you always until the end of the age but it doesn't mean that Jesus will just abandon the apostles at the end of the age. All right. Oh, so in second Samuel six twenty three is similar. Mika was the daughter of Saul. She was childless until the day of her birth, day of her death. 
but it doesn't mean that she started having children after she died. So that, that argument is not very persuasive there. The other one would be the brethren of the Lord. All right. So the, the scriptures talk about the brothers of Jesus, uh, brothers and sisters. And so this is actually mentioned in paragraph 500 of the catechism. And so it says that they are close relations of Jesus, according to an old Testament expression. Uh, these passages are not referring to other children of the Virgin Mary. And so it's correct that uh, there are no passages in scripture that describe anyone else being a son or daughter of Mary, except for Jesus. Uh, it just says Mary and these brothers and sisters of the Lord. So who are these individuals? They could be cousins. Uh, the Greek word for brother, Adelphos, uh, can also incorporate the Hebrew word, the problem is in Greek, there is a word for cousin and for kin, things like uh, anepsios and sugenis, relative or cousin. In Hebrew, you don't have a word for cousin. So you always use a kind of roundabout way of talking about it, like the, the son of my uh, father's uh, brother, you know, to talk about your cousin. Usually yeah. you just say brother for shorthand. And so in Greek, uh, Hebrew speaking Jews who knew Greek, would talk this way. They would use the Greek word Adelphos to mean cousin when it also literally means brother. Uh, so they could be cousins uh, or the brothers and sisters of the Lord. They could be children of Joseph. And so in that case, they would be adoptive siblings. This is a very ancient tradition from the Eastern part of the church, which says that Joseph was a widower who an elderly widower who had a was betrothed to Mary as her protector, and that he already had children from a previous marriage and his wife had passed away. And so they were, these other children would be the adoptive siblings of Jesus. And there's various arguments between these two views, uh, but both are acceptable for Catholics to hold. Yeah, I, I definitely lean towards the, you know, the Adelphos side of it. Because yeah. um, I mean, I mean, how often do I talk about you guys and my brothers, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if I told, you know, if I went and said that and then my mom had to claim Della Cross as another son, she'd throw me off the roof, right? Well, it's, the, you know, going through this hospitalization, <laughs> this hospitalization with Father Tetlow and I'm his medical sur surrogate. And it's like, you know, what's the relationship? Well, he's my he's my priest brother. Yeah. But it's like it's it's family, like I'm family, yeah. you know, and, and that sense of him. I've been talking a lot about this with with brother priests lately, too. It's just like, you know, the the fraternity that we have, we don't have wife. We don't have we don't have a wife. We don't have children. We don't have, uh, you know, property or, or things like that, like the sense of like a home that we that we have right. formed, you know, in, in our in our ability, or our capacity. Um, but what we do have is this this sense of fraternity mm -hmm. that is deeply rooted in the person of Christ and and what that bond represents is something you know very much familial in in relationship to what we're talking and this about this is very i mean a great composite of that mm -hmm. we we say all the time you're my brother from another mother that's right, right. my sister from another yeah. mister there you go right but i and i think you have to even look at the <clears throat> first century view of things and how things very much were much more oriented towards the clan, towards mm -hmm. the tribe, and towards the family. You know, now, I mean, it, we don't have that same sense. It's not like... That's a great point. It's not like the Delacrosses are like a, a particular clan. I mean, you've got a lot of them, and like, give it 10 more years, and you're going to reverse this back to all yeah. the Old Testament, bro. Like, but, you're doing great, Deli. But that sense of clan was much more important. <laughs> this is These were brothers, and you will see that. These are brothers and sisters, right? It's your clan. So I really do think that that is the sense... Mm -hmm. That's in there. And I love that the what you said about until does not imply a mm -hmm. reversal. Because mm -hmm. what? Jesus is with you until the end of the age. But then after that, you're on, the, on your own. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, 
that makes no sense, but it makes perfect sense that, well, you know, it's saying, it's, you know, it's kind of a thing saying up until, you know, yeah. not, you know, that it's a definitive reverse, reversal afterwards. Yeah. So. Uh, reflecting on how voices can come against this dogma particularly, and as you were mentioning, a, a greater majority of chatter online is related to this particular dogma. You know, the perpetual virginity relates to, you know, before Jesus was born, you know, in the action of birthing Jesus, and then even after the birth, uh, as it relates to her perpetual virginity, Trent, can you can you comment on on those three areas of of how we can uphold the perpetual virginity of Mary uh, before, during, and after birth? Right, and that's one reason I wanted to be careful in the discussion and definition of Mary's virginity, because this dogma is not tied to particular biological definitions of the state of a woman's body uh, when she has not engaged in intercourse, for example. Some people have dug a little bit too deep and sometimes in even improper ways to try to connect that to what it means for Mary to be ever virgin. The core element of the doctrine is just that Mary never had sexual intercourse, though it was a, a very long held tradition that in the process of giving birth to Christ, Christ did not cause injury to his mother. He who came to heal would not come to destroy, for example, uh, is, is one way that it's been put. And so to understand uh, Mary's body retaining this intactness, or at least not suffering injury through the birth of Christ. And actually, when you read in scripture, uh, it talks, you know, it, it talks about the birth in, in a way. My colleague, Tim Staples, has made this argument. Uh, I think he talks, you know, Mary reaching for these swaddling claws, that this is something, a, a peaceful, sublime kind of uh, birth that we would be fitting for our Savior. Uh, so the, the key here is just, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I'm sorry, brother. Keep, keep going. The key. Yeah, so I would just say that Mary never had sexual relations at any point in her life. And so that would mean that Mary was a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. Though the church, so the church has uh, firmly defined the aspect of her not engaging in sexual intercourse. It is left more to theological speculation, the nature of her body and what happened during the birth of Christ itself. Mm -hmm. And as as a pastor, I'm constantly, and a priest, I'm constantly asked about, you know, did Mary suffer the pains of childbirth? So I'm so glad that you reference that. And it just seems like this dogma is really bridging very well with the next dogma that we're going to be discussing with respect to, you know, th that tradition that you just expressed right. with the Immaculate Conception. Yeah, it does. Because one of the evidences for early belief in Mary being uh, conceived without original sin is that one of the punishments for original sin is birth pains. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone who gives birth will have birth pains, for example. Some, some women don't even today. But uh, the fact is that if Mary were protected from ever from original sin, then it would be fitting. It would make sense that she were protected from its consequence, which would be birth pains. And a very old document called the Odes of Solomon attests to an early belief in Mary not having pain during childbirth, which would relate back to what we talked about, about the virginity of Mary not suffering injury during the birth of Christ, but would also relate to her being protected from uh, original sin and some of its effects. And so that's the, be the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. And so if we go to the Catechism to get the proper definition of it, which we can also find in 
Pope Pius IX's bull Ineffabilis Deus. It says here, this is right above the part about Mary being the mother of God. Quoting the Pope, it says, the most blessed Virgin Mary was from the first moment of her conception by a singular grace and privilege of almighty God and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, savior of the human race, preserved immune from all stain of original sin. Mm -hmm. uh, and then later we see in Mysticus Corporis from Pope Pius XII, the affirmation that Mary was protected both from original sin and from personal sin. And so by being united uh, to her son, Mary is given a special grace from God to be protected from all sin. Just as you and I have original sin removed from in baptism, those graces were applied to Mary uh, when she was conceived, so she was conceived without original sin. Yeah, you wouldn't, you'd be so surprised how many people say, Oh, the Immaculate Conception. That's when, you know, Gabriel showed up to Mary. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's yeah. that happens so it, often. It and just yeah. even the term is so misunderstood. But it refers to Our Lady being conceived without the stain of original sin. And, you know, people say, well, where's that in the Bible? And I think this is a really great example of a theological proof where sometimes math problem is... A plus B equals C, and you get A and B provided, and you have to solve for C. Well, if you're doing, this is almost like a little bit of a theological algebra, where it's yeah. like X plus B plus C equals whatever, and solve for X. You That's know? why lo Aristotelian logic in preparation for anybody studying theology, if you're studying theology, you must study philosophy. There's no, there's no replacement. And having a logical approach to this is mm -hmm. helpful because if we're going to have any type of theological expressions related to faith or related to God, and certainly what we ought to be drawing from the fountain of Scripture mm -hmm. and the biblical foundations of what we believe, we have to be able to draw these conclusions. And that's essentially what the magisterium of the church has been doing for mm -hmm. the past 2,000 plus years. Yeah, so. and this goes back to that first Marian dogma of that her being the Theotokos. Well, okay, if that is... If that's the the sum, that's the solution to the answer. Well, go back. Well, I think you can then infer and you can start to build the case for this by having that being an accepted dogma up front and then coming back around saying, okay, well, what are the ramifications of her being the bearer of God? What mm -hmm. are the ramifications of her divine motherhood? Can anything perfect come of anything impure and you can start to build the case backwards like that and then when you when you're doing that notice what's happening we begin to uncover what, what's the central reality Where, how do we bend our knee who who do we direct our adoration to but Jesus Christ that's you it. know and and to realize what this means in the economy of salvation of what Trent was expressing before and the history of salvation we begin to really see who the Blessed Virgin Mary is, because knowing Mary is knowing Christ, and and seeing through this lens and what Christ is accomplishing is really very important for each of us, and, yeah. and we're, you know, thinking but, about this and discussing this is so important. And this is a really difficult one to defend. I don't even think I have a great arsenal in this, but they'll say, well, Mary is just a woman, or Mary gave birth, you know, on Christmas, but then after that, you know, she was off to the casino, and just like anyone else, you know, smoking and drinking and partying, just another... Another fallen woman. So this is a really important one. Uh, Trent, give us some tools on how to defend this, because this is really difficult to defend, I think, for most people. Well, I think what people have to understand is, as Catholics, we don't believe in sola scriptura, so we don't believe that every dogma of our faith has to be found explicitly in Scripture. Sola scriptura itself is not found there, of course, because it's not what the Bible teaches. So we have to resist the temptation. We have to biblically prove everything. Rather, I think we start with Mary as the mother of God, and that makes this very fitting, uh, that she's also this 
wonderful sign to us through being ever virgin. And so her being protected from sin would be something that's very fitting. It's not a proof, but it makes a lot of sense. Then I think we would look to the sources of theology. We'd look to things like scripture. Uh, we see that the angel Gabriel greets Mary uh, as full uh, by, by a name that's kind of like a title, Kekara Tomene in Greek, full of grace, translated. I got to Greek, by the way. Oh. <laughs> uh, it's a great thing to have, yeah. So uh, <laughs> from the Greek word kara too, so grace, and it's a particular form of that word that would imply that someone has grace as an enduring aspect of their being. Now, once again, that's not a proof in and of itself, uh, but it certainly shows it as a sign in that direction, especially that it's used as a title to refer to Mary. And then uh, looking at the development in the church's history of the sacred tradition related to Mary, how we see a greater coalescing, if you will, or uh, forming of the church's opinion around how special and important Mary is, that if Mary is the ark, uh, you know, just as the ark of the covenant carried the word of God on stone tablets, the fathers of the church recognized that Mary is the new ark, that she carried the word of God within her womb. Uh, and if the ark was uh, without defect in the Old Testament, uh, it's it's pure and without defect in the new. And so in the catechism, paragraph 493, it says the fathers of the Eastern tradition called Mary Panagia, the all holy, free from any stain of sin, uh, as though fashioned by the Holy Spirit and formed as a new creature. Uh, and so uh, we see this this greater, this trajectory of understanding of Mary's identity and role in relation to Jesus in that way. So I think for me that this is reflected in scripture. We see its growth and development within the sacred tradition. And if Christ establishes church, uh, it can faithfully guide us in having this correct knowledge of Mary. So would it be fair or how can you explain maybe the the timeline of this? Is it almost like a, a special dispensing of the grace of Calvary and the grace of baptism before they were instituted because God is not bound by time? Or is it a special favor, you know, that kind of precedes that? Yeah, well, I mean, God is omnipotent, so he's able to uh, dispense his grace and favor to people in any way that he chooses. But when we look at the tradition of the church, I, I think it makes a lot of sense to say that the merits that Christ accru uh, merited for us on the cross, uh, those salvific merits can be applied to Mary because God, of course, is outside of time. Uh, he's able to apply that to her so that she, just as you and I have sin taken away through baptism that comes to us from the merits of Christ on the cross in the past, Mary received a kind of proto-baptism in her own conception from these merits that would later be received in the future. And so that perfectly makes sense to, to see Mary's uh, role in the economy of salvation. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Now, before we get into the, the fourth and final of the dogmas, um, I want to mention a couple of our sponsors because they really are some great assets that you can use to increase your prayer life and increase your, uh, your holiness. And that's what we need to do. You know, as men, um, one of the, you know, one of the things is always striving for holiness and being who God created us to be. So we're talking about how God created Our Lady, you know, our creation soul boast. He created her without sin. Unfortunately, boys, not us, right? So we always have to be on guard and make sure that we're continuing to grow in, in holiness. And if you look back at the early church, one of those great ways is through a couple of pillars of, like, say, the Desert Fathers prayer, asceticism, and fraternity. And those are all aspects of what Exodus 90 provides to men. Over 
20, 30, 40,000 men have used Exodus 90 to grow in holiness, become the man that God intended them to be. And it may be time for your exodus, you know, and and if you don't have time for a 90-day program, they have all sorts of programs. You know, it started with a 90-day ascetical practice of entering into a period of time where you're taking cold showers, you're restricting your senses in every respect, and not entering into entertainment, really sinking yourself into your identity as a child of God and developing a sense of fraternity in response to what the Catholic Church teaches. So you have a lot more time on your hands when you're not constantly being stimulated by entertainment to learn about your faith by checking out the Council of Trent, the Mm. talk show that we do, and so much more. You know, you have the time to be able to invest and renew yourself. And I've done, a number of my parishioners have done Exodus 90 and other Exodus programs, and the product is just phenomenal. Marriages are improved, families are improved, and people are truly renewed in faith. And we as men, we're, you know, we're tasked with this in our society. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Father Mark Toops at this men's conference says the Marines aren't coming, you know? Mm-hmm. They're not going to come and fix everything. It starts with a man on his knees. Mm-hmm. And so the, these types of practices help us to humble ourselves and be a beggar before God, to be related to through his suffering to those around us to help this world that we live in. This is this is our calling as men. Yeah. So a lot of people associate Exodus with their 90-day program, and that's the core program that they have, but that's not all that they offer. The Exodus app has all kinds of great prayer resources, uh, reflections, and different practices that you can use to increase your holiness as a man. So go to catholictalkshow.com forward slash Exodus, and you can try the app 100% free and see if it works for you. And like I said, there's been tens of thousands of men who have went through this and achieved amazing results, both in their spiritual life, in their family life, in their community, and we can't recommend it enough. You know, like they have daily gospels, they have parables, you know, the the prayer element of this app is, is tremendous. And so many of my priest brothers have appreciated because it's regenerated and renewed their prayer life on a daily basis, being a part of fraternities in their parishes. So to any brother priests out there or seminarians in the seminary, you know, get out there and really form some groups because it's, this is a great movement to be a part of. Yeah, Exodus actually grew out of a seminary practice that mm-hmm. a couple men and you know started in the seminary. Now, again, go to CatholicTalkShow.com forward slash Exodus to try that out. Now, our other sponsor is Hollow, and Hollow is the world's number one Catholic prayer app. They have tens of thousands of different resources, both guided audio prayers, uh, they have reflections, they have all kinds of cool things like scripture being read by, you know, uh, Rumi, Jonathan, Jonathan Rumi, Rumi, Bishop Jesus Barron. From Chosen, yeah. Uh, they've got Mark Wahlberg. Mark Wahlberg is on, on there. He's like, hey, you know, I'm going to talk about the Bible here. They've right? got sleep aids. Sleep aids are great. Mm-hmm. I know you don't need those. Lexio Divina. Yeah. That's my favorite. Now you Guided use prayer. You use that a lot in the car, right? Yeah, it's just such a. I mean, it's just so easy to to do. You just it's all guided for you. Mm-hmm. All your mental. Um, sort of preparation and the encounter that you have with God is is developed, and it's an ancient form of prayer, mm-hmm. you know? And let's face it, like, we all have bad habits. It's very easy to form bad habits. Mm-hmm. And with this, it creates a sense of responsibility to form good habits. Mm-hmm. And the accessibility of the tradition of our faith and the lineage of prayer and mysticism that's all in one app, yeah. it's no wonder that this is the number one app in the app store when it comes to prayer and our Catholic faith. That's right. Over they a have billion prayers. A billion prayers. This app has inspired and guided a billion prayers. And wow. you can't say that that's not making a real impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, and go check it out for yourself. Again, 
Try it for free. See if it works for you like it has worked for us. So go to catholictalkshow.com forward slash hollow, H-A-L-L-O dubs, and you can get it for free right now. Um, we can't recommend it enough, and we really appreciate them, um, you know, working with us through the years. I mean, we work with groups that we believe in, and Exodus and Hollow are groups that we truly believe in and, and use. Yeah, and they've been with us from the very beginning, That's and right. it's it's been a charismatic experience of God's providence really uniting so many people like Trent and the Catholic Answers and, you mm-hmm. know, just phenomenal relationships to really put what we're doing out there, yeah. and, and so much good is happening. So let's get to this then, this last Marian dogma. Um, the Assumption of Mary. Now, this one's very dear to me, uh, the Assumption's on August 15th. My father passed away on August 15th. Oh, wow, yeah. Uh, so it's something that, you know, has a, kind of a... I always remember mm. it, and uh, and it, typically what happens, I'm like, oh, it's the Feast of the Assumption. Oh, yeah, Dad, you know? Mm. I remember this one first, but... Uh, and then the church I go to is Our Lady of the Assumption, and there's the big Feast of the Assumption in Cleveland. So this one really is a, a personal and near and dear one to me. Um and this one again is. Do you need a hanky right now? You look like you're misting. I don't I need a hanky. I'm fine. Okay. No, I'm good. All right. All right. Just my checking. dad, my dad, be he dead, didn't raise no little girl. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I am no little girl, but I cry. You cry like a <laughs> man. But uh, <laughs> Trent, explain to us first, I guess, what the assumption of Mary means, how we can defend it, and then there's a couple questions I'd like to follow up on that I'm sure you can help me answer here. Sure. So when we look at the catechism in paragraph 966, it quotes munificentissimus deus. There's a, uh, there's one to say three times fast. Yeah. When Pope Pius XII uh, defined the assumption, uh, defined it ex cathedra for belief dogmatically. And it says here recorded in the catechism, Finally, the Immaculate Virgin preserved free from all stain of original sin when the course of her earthly life was finished, was taken up body and soul into heavenly glory and exalted uh, by the Lord. Well, let me see. Is this, I'm pretty sure it's quoting. Yeah. Yeah. It's quoting yeah. it. Uh, it might also be, it's all, the paragraph's also quoting Lumen Gentium, but it's quoting Munificentissimus Deus. And the key part here is in that document, it defines that at the end of her earthly life, uh, Mary was taken up body and soul into heavenly glory. Uh, and it says the assumption of blessed Virgin is a singular participation in her son's resurrection and an anticipation of the resurrection of other Christians. And so Mary being the first uh, disciple, so to speak, the first one to receive Christ, she's the model disciple for us. And it's fitting that she is also the model of partaking in the first fruits of the resurrection of the body as a sign of hope to all believers. And so that's the belief in the, in the assumption. I like that you said as a, as a sign of hope to all believers, because why would it even be important to, why is it even important to consider what happened to her? Why does it even matter? You know, it's like, what is the purpose of having this as a teachable moment? What's the purpose of this having as a dogma? It doesn't That's affect right. us, you know, but it really does. Well, one theory is that it, this was defined in the year 1950. And there's a thought, well, why would you define it then? And Pope Pius XII saw that in the aftermath of World War II, that many people were losing a respect for the human body itself, with the horrors of the war and a growing sense of modernism and scientism. And thinking that the body doesn't really matter that much. And so this definition, this dogmatic teaching, really enforces the importance of Christians that we believe in the resurrection of the dead. We believe in a heavenly reality that is both uh, embodied, body and soul. Uh, 
And so Mary is, is a glorious sign of that, that we celebrate. Uh, now, the, the evidence for this dogma, once again, I would say that it's reflected in Scripture. Uh, I think that those who believe in the assumption, it naturally fits to see that in Revelation chapter 12, where immediately after the Ark of the Covenant is described, which as we saw, Mary is the new Ark of the Covenant, talks about a woman uh, standing, a, a woman clothed with the sun uh, sta- you know, in heaven, and I think that give it who gives birth to the Messiah. I think I think that really points towards Mary being bodily assumed into heaven, that vision of heaven that John has. Uh, and then also we see this in a tradition in the church uh, going back, especially into the early Middle Ages, these Marian feasts related to the Assumption. In the Eastern Church, we see Christians who had preserved uh, this teaching and kept it safe and spread in that area. And so I think the church guides us through what is reflected in scripture and sacred tradition to see this glorious truth about Mary. You can also point to what you were talking about earlier. Biologically, her body had our Lord, mm-hmm. you know, just biologically. I think the assumption is um, just just speaks to that. And, and, the, and then the diminishment of the body in death through sin um, to, to have her preserved and, and brought directly into heaven I think is a sign of both of those things, just speaking from biologically and spiritually. Yeah, Christ the Redeemer of our humanity, the firstborn of the dead, showcases the power of the resurrection and the ascension into heaven and and realizing what the Dormition and the assumption of Mary represents for us. And I, I love what Trent was saying before is the sense of, you know, in, in this growing contents of the, the 20th century, but all throughout history, you see the demeaning uh, powers of the world and evil toward the human person and toward the human body, and and that growing, uh, really, uh, misunderstanding of what the human body represents. I love in, in the 20th century that John Paul II is developing his philosophical foundations that led to the theology of the body and, and his dedication to the Blessed Virgin Mary and his totus tuus, his expression of the assumption is, is really a, a succinct way of kind of um, expressing what we're, we're sharing now. But he said, in her, assume, in her assumption into heaven, we are shown the eternal destiny that awaits us beyond the mystery of death a destiny of total happiness and divine glory. This supernatural vision sustains our daily pilgrimage. And Mary teaches us about life. By looking at her, we understand better the relative value of earthly greatness and the full sense of our Christian vocation. It's for all of us. Now, Father, you brought in a word there that I don't think a lot of us Latins know, us Westerners. And Trent, you said that you go to a Byzantine divine liturgy. Um, I, I do that as well a lot. And one of the things you'll see over there in relation to the assumption is the dormition. And you, mm-hmm. you mentioned that word, dormition. Um, and that's a, a very Eastern thing. Trent, can you explain kind of the difference between what the Eastern Eastern churches believe as far as the dormition uh, and the, versus the assumption and how they are the same, but how there's also subtle differences? Right. So in the dogmatic definition of the assumption by Pope Pius XII, the Pope is very careful. He says, at the end of the course of her earthly life, Mary was taken up body and soul into heaven. You'll notice that in this dogmatic definition, he does not take a position on Mary dying. He doesn't say that after Mary's death, she was taken up body and soul into heaven. Rather, at the end of the course of her earthly life. So how could one's earthly life end? Uh, well, for nearly all of us, it ends in death. You know, we we die. 
Uh, but for some people, their earthly lives end, like let's say Elijah, they're, they're taken up into heaven and assumed alive up into heaven. Now, I would say the majority view, and this would be the view in the East, but also I would say the majority view among theologians was that Mary died and was then taken up into heaven, body and soul, and, and reunited with her son. So in the East, the celebration of Mary's assumption is called the Dormition of the Theotokos. So Dormition implying that she has fallen asleep in the Lord because we use that phrase falling asleep uh, as a, a euphemism uh, for death or another expre expression of death, one who has fallen asleep in the Lord. So the Dormition of the Theotokos, Dormition of the Mother of God, is a way in the East where this is put forward to talk about her dormition and then her assumption being taken up into heaven. While some people have said that Mary did not die at all. Now, some people might, some people might say, well, Mary was free from sin. So how could she die? Uh, well, uh, she may have chosen to, to, uh, to imitate her son that her death may have been something where she wanted to enter into it just like, uh, her son did. So she has a solidarity with him. That's one explanation that's offered. But I would also say that Jesus was free from sin. Jesus did not have sin, yet he was still able to suffer Great the point. effects of death. Uh, you know, so Jesus had a, a mortal body. He was able, his body was able to be injured and to suffer, suffer fatal injury. And the same would be true of Mary, even though she's free from sin, she still has a human nature. Her body can suffer injury, uh, including the, the injuries that accrue in old age, where you eventually then fall asleep in the Lord. However, even though she died, uh, just as we talk about uh, in the Old Testament prophecies related to Mary, how you will not let your Holy One suffer corruption. Mary died, but she did not suffer corruption and decay she was re you know her she was taken up body and soul into heaven to prevent that from happening yeah i've heard like the term the firstborn of the resurrection which mm -hmm. is which is beautiful uh and again i think this is also kind of that i don't know theological time traveling right you know that she again she was able to experience the fruits of calvary before others through that um through her immaculate conception because of her unique participation in Calvary, mm -hmm. her unique participation in the suffering of her Lord, but also because of her unique participation in the joys of the Lord, she was also to be the first to experience that ultimate triumph of the resurrection of the dead body and soul. Mm -hmm. um, it's really great. And I love the Greek uh, and the Eastern icons of the Dormition. You'll see all the apostles have gathered around mm -hmm. her. And you'll see Mary very serene and Dormition very much in that sense of sleeping. It's a really beautiful icon. We should get one in here. Um, That'd be great. There's a there's a really beautiful church. Uh, well, you know, it's Mount, Mount Saint Macrina in Western Pennsylvania, and they had this beautiful chapel of the Dormition. They have a statue of Our Lady sleeping <laughs> and the apostles around. Uh, really beautiful, but um, you know, again, I think it's important that Mary is always a reflection of her son's divinity, and that her dying and being <coughs> assumed is, again, a guide point to us that we are body and soul. I mean, so many times you say, oh, I can't wait to get to heaven. I'm just going to be a disembodied angel floating around with wings and the halo playing the harp. We as Catholics do not believe that. It's mm -hmm. right there in the creed. We look forward to the resurrection of the body. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's important that this is uh, defined in such a way to, again, show the firstborn fruits of that mm -hmm. resurrection. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite quotes of St. John Paul II was that Mary 
steadfastly contemplated the face of Christ. Her whole, her whole existence, her whole life was in that form of co- contemplative gaze. Mm-hmm. And when, when we look at, you know, how the effect of this conversation has, has started and then where it has come, can we not see how important the Blessed Mother is in, in the relationship of revelation and how important dogmatic teachings are in the church? Mm-hmm. You know, without them, we really are left to just an isolated interpretation that can go many, many different ways. And that's a very scary place. It has. Yeah, and it has, and it continues to do so. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I hope that this this show could provide all of our listeners and viewers a chance to kind of really participate in this conversation. So we really want to hear from you too, what you think about these these dogmas and and what your feedback is for the show. And especially, you know, there may be other dogmas that are that are coming out related to the Blessed Mother mm-hmm. and dogmatic truths of the church. That's the that's the beauty of it because the magisterial role is in that form of authority to give definitive statements regarding the mysteries that we celebrate on a day-to-day basis. It's not like we've exhausted all of these things. It's something that's ongoing. Yeah, and there's other Marian teachings that are not at the level of dogma that could potentially be elevated to dogma, like that she's the queen of heaven, that she's the mother of the church, that she's the co-redemptrix or the mediatrix. These are Marian teachings and doctrines, not dogmas, right? And Trent was so good to explain the explain difference. That yeah, was great. Um, but I know that there's going to be, just by the nature of the title of this video, a lot of Protestants watching this who do not agree or even fully know the church's teaching. And I hope this really helped to understand why we believe what we believe and uh, that this is a good starting point for you to understand in dialogue mm-hmm. why Mary's important, not because Mary is a goddess, but because she's always a reflection of the salvific grace that Christ has gained for us through Calvary and the gifts of the grace of God the Father. And to those brothers and sisters out there that that do come from that premise of, of you know, just kind of really struggling with this, I know I have a, a dear brother here that converted to the faith last year, um, David Davis, and... Uh, you know, he struggles with Mary still. But, you know, to realize that this conversation is not is not the dogmatic conversation of the church, to turn to the documents and, and to turn to people just like Trent and, and, you know, really start to entertain these things uh, intellectually. And hopefully this is a good introduction and a start with that. Yeah. And just a brotherhood and the sisterhood that we all share with our other brothers and sisters in Christ who have fled to her protection yes. and have been protected by her. Yes. You know, like not protected by her, solely, but protected by her loving care as a mother in the church. Let us not forget that. Yeah. The, the output of all this <laughs> Amen. Is, 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 a, is a relationship with Christ in, through her mother. And it is seen. I love that. And, and it's, it's exactly what you were saying before, like what, what Muslims may bring in an attack of, of mm-hmm. these dogmas. But, you know, from the time I was spending in India, in India it's like, there were so many Muslims. There were more Muslims in the Church of Our Lady of Perpetual Help than Catholics. <laughs> That's crazy. You know, because they just absolutely respond to the effect of her love, what you're saying, to, yeah. to Mary. So, yeah, Mary is our mother, and, you know, she's the reason that we, you know— uh, that's the reason we chose her as our patroness of our show. But Trent, I, I really appreciate you helping us explain this because you really do have a gift with apologetics that we just don't have and a kind of a command of it. So how can people find out more about what you do? Where can they go and um, listen to what you know you have to say on other topics? Because I know I listen to it and it's been very beneficial to me. Yeah. So I'd like other people to hear that as well. 
Sure. And if you'd like to go deeper in this topic, I cover it in two chapters of my book, The Case for Catholicism. I'd also recommend my colleague Tim Staples' book, Behold Your Mother, A Biblical and Historical Defense of the Marian Dogmas. Uh, as for myself, if people want to check out my podcast, they can go to iTunes, Google Play, uh, and also support it at TrentHornPodcast.com. It's also available on YouTube as the Council of Trent, if anyone wants to check that out there. Awesome. Uh, so, Trent, uh, you know, we loved having you on. Uh, definitely a lot more topics that we can use your help with, yeah. you know, sorting out uh, our kind of our bro theology and getting an actual professional <laughs> on it. You, know? you make us look good, Trent. Great to see your face. <laughs> um, and then again, I just want to thank everyone who sponsors and helps the show, our sponsors, Exodus and Hollow. And then to our patrons, you know, we can't afford we couldn't do this without you. We couldn't sure. afford to have fake coffee and fake cameras <laughs> and all the stuff without you uh, supporting it. So if you wanted to, you can go to catholictalkshow.com forward slash Patreon. There's a lot of different tiers on there. You got a lot of great gifts that we can give you in gratitude for you helping to support the, the show the that we coolest, do. the coolest, most comfortable hoodie. Hoodies. They are nice. I love these things. Yeah, I do too. I wear them all the time. So my brothers and sisters, it's always a joy to connect this way, whether you're on YouTube or on, you know, any of the platforms that we have out there in the audio world online. We thank you for following us. Please spread the word. You know, the Catholic Talk Show continues to promote the Catholic faith and proclaim the good news each and every week right here. And we look forward to seeing you next week. God bless. Yeah.